The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Okay. Um, let's see. Other, let me touch on a few things that people often ask about. What is this collective karma, Ajahn? Is there such a thing as collective karma for particular societies or peoples or cultures? And, and the Buddha never talked about collective karma. However... You know, he, he talked about individual streams of consciousness, but if you have a particular group of people with similar attitudes, generating similar intentions in similar circumstances, circumstances at a particular time and place, then they will tend to receive s uh, similar results. And so it can look like this whole group has received... Uh, Sim the same results as if they're all making karma together. But it is, uh, it's not the case that you know, whole countries or societies or peoples will have a, a collective karma. That's more of a, just a, a popular term that we use. This brings me to my second point. <laughs> okay. I'll wait. That's clever. <laughs> using, using the law of karma or, or referring to the law of karma as a way of being insensitive towards other people's suffering. For example, a huge group of people die in the Holocaust. Um, uh, an earthquake strikes a country. And hundreds of people die. A tsunami strikes uh, Sri Lanka and say, oh, it's God's will. Yeah. Or even, even just say, oh, what well, was their karma? Right? So whether it was due in some part to previous karma that they made you know, or not, then it's never an excuse to be callous towards people who are suffering. Right? We should always try to, to be as empathetic and, and as helping and as sensitive as possible. But like you say, even you know, every aspect of the teachings, um, there's a possibility of, of misusing it or just... Um, taking the wrong side of it, taking it—you know—he grabs it from the wrong angle, and then, and then uh, doesn't quite have the the same—you know—it loses some of its wholesome power. So, with the law of karma, if you see someone in a in a born into a very difficult circumstance, say, "Oh, well, they must have made bad karma in the past life." On one level, okay, may, maybe there's some truth to that, but on an, on more importantly is 
Well, that's not a very dharmic attitude to take, right? How about, you know, just being compassionate to suffering where you see it in the present? That's much more important. So, you know, with even these concepts, you know, have to watch out for that one. lifetime or other lifetimes in the past and what they're experiencing now that, that that's not necessarily the case is, is that true it's very difficult to to pinpoint what the causes are right. and we can talk about general principles general patterns but it's very difficult to pinpoint and say well this person is suffering because of right? I mean sometimes you can see that within one lifetime it's more clear you know this person's in jail because they killed somebody, right? It's clear what the cause and effect relationship is, but other times it's not so clear, and and it's not uh, an excuse to be insensitive or callous, right. just by saying, "Oh, well, you know, they must have made bad comment in a past <laughs> life." Right, right. I, I can see where that would be a bad thing. So someone could think I I deserved what happened to me. Or other people could think they deserved what happened to them. And when that is bound up with a Western, a general Western tendency to have low self-esteem or to be self-critical or to feel guilt, then then it can be quite pernicious, quite you know, harmful. Now, okay, I lived in Thailand for a long time and. There was not a tendency towards guilt or lack of self-esteem. And the people in poorer villages may have had the, the general idea, oh, you know, we were born poor, we don't have a lot of good karma. But, but they kind of say it and, and laugh or chuckle or say, it's like, oh, yeah, we must have not made a lot of good karma in past lives. You know, we're just, all I have is one water buffalo. Um, and so it, it doesn't have that heaviness of, you know, that we, that, that's one of the benefits of being in other cultures, you see, wow, they really react very differently to that. And then again, you see how karma, the results can manifest in a wide variety of, of ways, right? Material prosperity or lack of it, okay, that's just one form of causes and effects, right? But you look at almost all of the greatest teachers of our tradition, they were born into very poor villages, right? Dharmically, they were wealthy already. It did, you know, as soon as they started practicing, they had the potential to make very quick progress. Materially, they weren't, it wasn't like they were born into wealthy families or royal, royalty in Bangkok, and then it was all, you know, it was just easy after that. You know, they were, materially, they were born in very difficult circumstances. So, you know, we also had just have to differentiate between 
a superficial looking at someone's life and say, oh, well, they are, they're living in a grass roof <coughs> hut, therefore they must not have much good karma in their consciousness. Right? Well, this may not be the truth at all. You know, they, <laughs> they may be, you know, until you know the state of someone's mind, it's very difficult to, to make conclusive statements like that. People that have everything externally that they need to be happy still may be fraught with stress and anxiety and depression and not be happy at all. And people who are living very simply, you know, can also be very happy and content and at peace. It's they're they're just they're two different things. They're independent, right? I mean, as long as you have enough food and some sort of shelter and enough clothes, then you have enough to be happy. And the rest then is is more dharma practice to, to determine one's level of of happiness and suffering. A big picture thought just occurred to me. <clears throat> so can we therefore, from everything we've said today, come to the conclusion that all evil or unwholesomeness that's happening in the world is based upon past karma and unwholesome actions? How do you... Probably, but it often, of course, it defines... Depends on how you define evil in the world. Mm -hmm. Right? Give me an example. Terrorism. Terrorism. Yeah. Anything that would arise from uh, an intention to harm other living beings is definitely unwholesome action. Unwholesome, it's going to have a painful result. Um, one of the more, the Buddha considered attachment to wrong views to be a, a very bad karma, you know, more than we would, almost, almost counterintuitively, right, almost more than we would expect, Buddha considered if you have if you hold to certain views which are not aligned with the way things are, then that can have, uh, that in itself is, is generating a lot of unwholesome karma. Hmm. So if you ascribe to the view that everyone who doesn't, you know, people who don't believe what I believe should be killed. Then the Buddha would consider that a wrong view, micha view, micha ditti, a wrong view, not in line with the way things truly are. And that's going to have a lot of negative, painful, karmic repercussions. Certainly, it will tend to lead to generating actions which harm other people and therefore harm oneself as well. But even the view itself you know, is harmful. 
So there are. Yeah, yeah. It's so. It's hard to imagine ever getting out of this. <laughs> What's that? I said it's hard to imagine ever getting out of this by means of of sentient beings. Getting out of this means Get, samsara. Getting out of yeah samsara. Yep, no one gets out alive. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting thought that I hadn't looked at from that bigger picture. All suffering in the world has its origins in unwholesome intentions, which I think is what you were getting at. So it, it's going to be impossible to alleviate all unwholesome intentions and their results. We can do a surprising amount, though, in our own lives, and then the ripple effect that goes out from that is, is going to have a substantial positive effect. Helps to alleviate the feeling of powerlessness, you know, hopelessness or powerlessness. It's like when you start seeing, oh, wait a minute, you know, I actually, you know, this is not just, I'm not just stuck in this situation. You can really make some positive changes here, and you start seeing the results coming really quickly and dramatically, and you think, oh, yeah, I really, really can make a difference, even if it's, you know, who knows how big the ripple effect will be. Buddha was just one person. Ajahn Chah was just one person. We're still experiencing the ripple effect of his Dhamma practice. So all of us will have a, can have a substantial helpful effect on the world in some way, in some form. Uh-oh. So hold it like that. Um, how do you know or have you reached enlightenment? And then once you reach enlightenment, what do you do? Because you still have to be in this world, right? Or do you just suddenly go poof and you disappear into like nirvana? You know, I mean like... Yep, that's what happens. So you just disappear? So you haven't reached poof. enlightenment yet because you're still here? Or would you say you have in moments, and then how do well, you... Well, we can, we, can, we can manifest just at will when we... Oh, okay. <laughs> Come back. Re- re- workshop's over. Boop, we're gone. Because you read about it. You know, you read about the, like, kind of working towards enlightenment. But mm-hmm. once you've reached that, I mean, really, yeah. like... Yeah, then what? Life is boring. Well, no, it isn't boring, do? but I'm just wondering, like, then... What happens? You just sit like, around. It's like retirement. You, you don't know what to do with yourself. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, how do you know when you're enlightened? Well, yeah, it's a big question. <laughs> um, the mind is prone towards overestimation. <laughs> and even if we have little, little insights, it may seem so dramatic compared to our previous understanding, and we think, wow, that was a big insight. And then we, as we practice more, we have 
we get used to that, and then we get bigger insights, and we think, wow, that was mind-blowing. That must be the first level of enlightenment. But it may still be away, quite a ways away. So, it, it, at every stage, the human beings are prone to overestimation of their achievements in, in spiritual matters. They tend to. So, it's very helpful to have a teacher who is guiding one, who has kind of been there. And it's also, even if you don't have that, then it's very helpful to have an attitude of, whatever I've achieved, fine, I'm not going to attach to it, just going to keep practicing. Right? And that's the safest attitude. Uh, so it's like, really, wow, that was a great meditation. Was that jhana? Okay, it doesn't matter. You don't have to put a label on it. Just keep practicing. Just keep practicing. You know if, you're, if it feels like you're on the right track. It's like you have some deep insights and wow, I really see things clearly. I wonder if that was, oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about putting a label on it. Just keep practicing. The only danger is when we think, oh, now I know. Now I see. Now I'm enlightened. And then we stop practicing or we start identifying with that. I mean, what's the greatest way that our defilements can get in there and identify with being an enlightened person. Now, I'm an enlightened person. I'm enlightened. May I expound to the masses? Right? Or something more subtle than that. But that's the danger of, of that, the danger of identification with and, and trying to label certain stages of the practice. And so the safest attitude is, no matter what you experience, just keep practicing. Just keep practicing. If you get, I mean, even the greatest teachers of our tradition, they were, many of them thought they were fully enlightened, but they were just short of that. And so there's stories, you know, they, they tell of, you know, for maybe years, of just experiencing um, purity of mind, radiance of mind, no attraction, aversion, seemingly no delusion whatsoever, just purity of mind and, and uh, no sign of defilements coming up anywhere, even subtle ones. So it was quite natural for, to come to the conclusion after you're watching this for years, think, okay, maybe, maybe that's it. Yep, done, we're done, finished. And uh, sometimes another teacher might point it out. Sometimes, you know, if, if, a, if that person has a lot of integrity and keep watching, you'll see, oh, there's a, just right in the midst of that, there's still some ignorance, delusion, avicca. It's, ah, that's the final, the final thing. And when they see that, then they have the, then they, you know, start paying attention to that. And, and then, they, and then they go beyond that. But it's only in retrospect were they able to, to see that as powerful as their experience it was, it still wasn't full enlightenment. So the answer is, you know, once they are truly, actually arhats, yes, they know. But it's also very common that before someone reaches that stage, people will overestimate themselves. 
won't really know unless they don't have to come back. Once they, they die in this physical world, then... Once they die and they're not reborn, and they're like, oh, I guess that was it. <laughs> um, and uh, they don't go poof. No, they don't go poof. Uh, however, there are uh, concentric circles of neon lights. Yes. Um, I see that number eight is taking intoxicants and then to mental derangement. Would it be okay to take um, an intoxicant like a dark red wine um, to relax the mind? I took a photo of my notes. I sure did. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see. That brings us to to stealing. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) <laughs> All right. I'm sorry. Yes, you were saying. Would it be okay? To, would it be okay to take a, a dark red wine for the benefit of relaxing the mind, but before there was any mental derangement? <laughs> 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 um, I think you have to make that decision yourself. As long as I'm alone and nobody else is sees me and I don't right. poop somewhere that somebody's right. going to step on. As long as no one else knows. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I mean, situations like that. Okay, like, no, seriously. Taking intoxicants, for example. Um, you take, it's, it's obvious if you take too much or there's an addiction involved, even subtle addiction, it can have um, negative effects in one's life. We see that all the time. But what about if it's just uh, a glass of wine a day or one, one beer a couple times a week? Well, okay, you have to watch your own mind. Is that, does, that lead to, um, does that lead to a reduction of mindfulness? All right. Now, we would say it would, but you know, I'm, it, these things are best found out by yourself. You need to experiment. Uh, try these things for yourself. You know, you you know what it's like. Uh, you know what it's like to get drunk, and what is the karmic result of that? Right? How does it make you feel? What's your mind li- state of mind like? You know, after that. Okay, is that something you want to develop? Right? You know how hard it is on meditation retreats to develop continuity of clear awareness. You think, that's a lot of work that I've invested in that. And sometimes, you know, just one night of, of drinking can, can, can destroy it all, right? It's not that it can, can cover it up. Right? So, you know, you just have to look at that in your own mind and, and, and judge for yourself. What are the results of smoking, drinking, and... Mm-hmm. Seeing is this something that's helpful? Uh, is it? Does it have negative effects? Does it? Is it leading to? Is it? Is it in line with the path that I am practicing? Earlier, um, you touched on 
like the, some of the internal differences between Eastern and Western societies, uh, self-loathing, and, and I've heard the Dalai Lama speak on some of the same stuff. I'm interested in uh, your perspective, having lived over there for so long. Um, what are some of the other ways in which um, maybe the cultural ethos of here in the West versus over in the parts of the East that you've been in directly impacts the understanding of Buddhism? And I'm particularly interested in like what are ways that things that we see and do them here as Buddhist practitioners that are influenced and informed by our Western society versus ways that they see do things there influenced by their Eastern society that are just, that are different. Certainly in terms of how it manifests will be different. Mm -hmm. Thai culture, as one example, is very hierarchical. And they're very generally very happy with that. No one in Thai society is, is equal. Everyone has a place depending on um, their economic status, their age, uh, everything, even just within a family. You know, the, the, the younger siblings pay respect to the older siblings. The older siblings pay respect to the parents. The parents pay respect to the grandparents. Like, no one is, no one is equal. Everyone, and as soon as you meet new people, you kind of suss out pretty quickly, are we higher or lower? Right? And as soon as, as soon as people figure that out, then everyone relaxes. Right? So that's totally different than America. Mm -hmm. right? It's kind of the opposite in many ways. Um, so that, that's, a, that's a conventional level um, difference that will make, uh, is noticeable in how we relate as monastics, as a community. Uh, right? So that comes into play. The level of simplicity of life versus complication of life, that will have complications in terms of how easy it is to develop meditation. Mm. Right? Generally, if you grow up in the countryside in rural Thailand in the 20th century, your life isn't very complicated. And you don't have like excessive thinking is not such an issue. Mm. And they, can, they tend to be able to develop samadhi easier. Mm -hmm. Those of us who grow up in a society where we're highly educated or there's a lot of thinking and analysis, samadhi is not so easy for us because mm -hmm. we're just got so much momentum of thought. <coughs> but analysis is uh, easier, mm -hmm. right? And that's also very important in, in the path of insight. You need both. But an analysis, you know, like, okay, this is the situation of life. This is my internal situation. You know, let's, let's take an objective analysis of my mind and see where we're at and see what needs to be done, right? That's, I think that's easier for those of us who grow up in modern society than it is for people who've grown up in a more rural, agrarian society. So those are, s those are some of the differences that, that immediately come up.
Well, this is a list that just essentially comes from the suttas. So, for example, killing leads to a short life. Harming leads to bad health. Sexual misconduct leads to rivalry and revenge. We can come back to that one. Lying leads to being falsely accused. Gossip uh, Gossip that leads to disharmony will tend to lead up with breaking up of friendships, friendships, loss of friendships. Harsh or abusive speech leads to hearing unpleasant sounds. Uh, useless or frivolous speech or chatter um, leads to people not ta taking what you say seriously. Taking intoxicants can lead to mental derangement, which is maybe a you know, the more extreme form. Envy, uh, such as resenting wealth, fame, or status that another person has, leads to being uninfluential. Stinginess leads to being poor. Generous leads to being wealthy. Obstinate and arrogance um, leads, leads to... Um, Having a low status in life. Being humble and respectful leads to a, a higher, higher status, higher or better, better placement in life. Covetousness uh, covetousness and greed. Um, leads to conflict. Contentment leads to harmony. Anger and ill will leads to being reborn ugly. <laughs> you can see this just within one life. Um, having a, a loving kindness, metta, leads to being born beautiful. So, for no other reason than vanity, <laughs> one should practice the Dhamma. Fill your mind with loving kindness and compassion merely for the karmic result of physical beauty. But it's interesting. You know, some of these things which are kind of traditional and you reflect, you know, even within one lifetime, the same purpose, person. Um... You watch them over a period of years, if they habitually, you know, they may, may have a nice face. And then over the period of years, if they're always generating unwholesome intentions, that face becomes contorted and they become quite ugly later on. And sometimes people, you know, the opposite is true as well. People may not be particularly, you know, attractive in a normal way that we would define that, but... They've, they're kind of just exuding love all the time, and they seem really beautiful. Right? Even when they go get old, you know, full of wrinkles, somehow they seem, still seem really beautiful. So it makes sense. Huh? Uh. 
Um, the karmic result of not asking questions of wise teachers <laughs> is stupidity. I know. I didn't even bring this point up in the beginning, and still we got a lot of good questions today. And uh, I mean, the Buddha gives specific examples. You know, what are wise questions to ask of teachers, such as, "What is kusala? What is akusala? You know, what is the wholesome and what is the unwholesome?" Yeah, that's the essence of the law of karma. What type of of behavior will lead to long-term harm and suffering? What type of behavior will lead to long-term benefit and happiness? And the karmic cause for being wise is seeking out and questioning wise teachers. And wrong view. Now I spoke, just touched on wrong view, but the Buddha places a surprising amount of emphasis on the karma that we generate with our general, our basic understanding of life, like uh, an overview of how we see life. Now he says, nothing is more harmful than wrong view. Right? Pernicious. It leads to thoughts, words, and actions that lead to harm and suffering. There's many attitudes here. Um, if you have the view that animals were put on this earth for human beings to utilize, then it's a natural or it's a logical consequence that you would feel quite okay with killing animals. And so if you have this view, then that would lead it would easily lead to killing. And then one would start to rack up a lot of unwholesome karma. Or if you have the if you have a worldview that it's okay to kill people who don't believe in your particular God or religion. Or it's it's maybe even your duty to kill people who don't believe in your in your in what you believe in. Then then you could really rack up a lot of bad karma. But even if you don't act on it, sometimes these views will, they can block the block insight from arising. If you have the view that if you're, if you're adamant that there is no rebirth or you're adamant that uh, certain things don't exist, and you hold to that really tightly, then that in and of itself can be can become an obstacle and a block in the Dhamma practice. So even if we don't have conclusive proof, we, there's no way we can verify past lives, future lives, good ju- it's more realistic just to stay open. Say, okay, I don't know for sure. Right? But sometimes I run into people who say, you know, it's not true. There's Once you die, you die, that's it. Well, how do you know? How do you know? How do you know? What proof do you have? Say, you know, I don't have proof that future life exists. I can't, I can't offer any proof, but, but I try to stay open-minded. 
So the, the general view that we have about how things work will, will play a large role in our life. If you, have the, if you have a view that karma is really all about fate, you know, things are kind of written out. You know, and uh, that will just tend to undermine any effort to improve one's life. You think, because the, nat- the, the logical consequence is it doesn't really matter what I do. The results are going to be the same. Or, again, you know, it can lead to callousness towards other people. You think, well, it's, that's, if other people are suffering, well, that's just the way it is. Call it God's will. Call it law of karma. It's fate. Right? Can't change it. So that can undermine wholesome motivation to try to help people. So the views that we have uh, play a big role in how we see the world and then how we manifest in the world and the type of intentions that we generate. I've got a few minutes left. Let's talk about um, karmic connections with other people. This is a big one that comes up. I had... uh, So just recently I was with some people who um, their son had passed away at an early age. And so... Ever since, they've experienced a lot of questions and suffering and um, wondering, well, why? Was it, did he make some bad comma in a previous life for that to happen to him? Did, did we, as parents, make some bad comma that we had this, we have to experience this pain? I said, well, you know, when we have, when you have children, there's going to be some strong, attachment that forms, that comes with, with loving your family. And, you know, this is, this is we encourage this. We, we don't encourage attachment per se, but we encourage people to, to love each other. You know, you love your children, I love your parents. And, and with that, then, of course, there's going to be attachment that forms. And every day when we have interactions with those people, we, div- we, we strengthen these karmic connections. So then when someone we die, someone we love dies, then of course we're going to experience that pain of loss. It's one of those situations where you're willing to take on the, uh, you're willing to take on the, the future suffering you know, because this is just what you do when you have a family. You, you love them. And unless, until you reach a, a greater stage of being unconditionally loving, which is free of attachment, which is a very high standard, until, until you've achieved that very high standard, then you're going to be loving with attachment. And every time we love with attachment, there, is, there are consequences involved. 
eventually we will be separated from that person either sooner or later and then there will be there will be sadness grieving that's associated with that so we as as human beings we make karmic connections with each other every time we we spend time with other people and it's not necessarily karmic connections based on um, liking somebody either. Sometimes the karmic connections are based on uh, disagreeing with not liking somebody, with being in conflict. But even that can be a, a very much a form of attachment. And we, it's like we keep running into the same person and having conflict with the same person. Think, why? Well, Again, you know, there may be an attachment there that is perpetuating this karmic connection. And so it's worth investigating, you know, is there, s- is there something I can do to help right, be cut that karmic connection? It's like the story I told with this monk who I, I was really angry with. And I said, I don't want to keep perpetuating this antagonistic, or at least in my mind, an antagonistic, angry relationship with this perception. <laughs> Not really with anybody else. It's with the perception of this other person in my own mind. It's like I've got to learn how to change that perception. And so besides you know, giving away my most valuable thing to that person, then visually I just, I just kind of visualize, okay, I just want to cut the karmic connection with that person. And uh, that really helped to kind of be at peace. <coughs> so there are times when um, there are times when we it's helpful to cut karmic connections. There are times when we may willingly engage in creating attachments, you know, karmic attachments with other people, family members, friends, it doesn't mean we're free of the results, right? We're still, we're still setting ourselves up for, uh, for grieving when we lose that person. But, you know, gradually we we can develop the the higher standard of unconditional love, unconditional loving kindness, uh, which then will be free of any free of any attachment, but that's a very high standard. Okay. Does anybody have any? Okay, <laughs> we have 30 seconds. Anybody have any questions on that one? Do I have a cell phone? <laughs> um, at the moment, I have a, a borrowed cell phone that, I, that I'm using while I'm in the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> I don't find it very distracting because I don't really use them much. I don't even know how to. I 
barely use it for making a phone call. <laughs> I have one cell phone, which is essentially a camera and a flashlight, which I never have a number for. <laughs> it never connects to the internet, so it's basically just a camera and a flashlight. <laughs> it's a non-cell phone. <laughs> Okay, well, we've touched on a number of things, a lot to consider here. In no way have I conclusively covered this whole topic, um, but there's been a lot of good questions today. I really appreciate everybody's involvement and interest and interaction. Uh, so it's, it's been a, a fun and interesting day, so thank you all for coming. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, John. Really beautiful workshop today. And uh, we do this very interesting thing here at Common Ground, Donna, this circle of giving and receiving, and it's a mystery, and it's for each of us to figure out how to support Ajahn's Dhamma life and his Dhamma projects, building a couple uh, forest hermitages, one in California, one in northern Minnesota, and helping to support his travels. You can leave a donation in a way that creates a positive impression in your heart. So when you walk out the door, every time you think about it, right, it feels good. And so that's going to look different for each person depending on your situation and other obligations. But just this, that encouragement to participate in a way that actually leaves a positive effect or impression on your heart. And uh, in that way, Ajahn can continue with his great projects and we can all be happy. So lots coming up. You might want to take a newsletter on your way out, and we hope to see Ajahn next year. We'll see how things unfold and whether our karma is good or <laughs> his karma is what? <laughs> if you come back to Minnesota, good? <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> yeah, and the, how, how the black flies are. Great, but thanks for coming, everybody. It's been nice being together. Don't forget your... Dishes, a lot of people forget things behind, water bottles. Make sure you take everything with you. Thanks again, Ajahn. Right, thank you, everyone. Yeah, be well. Be happy. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.